couple of months, we have been working our way through the book of Philippians, and we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, and the first words that we read is rejoice. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, that's really easy for us to read here in an air-conditioned room, or heated room, I don't know which, uh, because it's Alabama in the spring, but... uh, in a comfortable room and wearing our comfortable clothes, we'll go get in our vehicles. But Paul told, commanded the Philippian church to rejoice, and he wrote this book hanging off of 18 inches of chains. He told us to rejoice while he was literally chained to a Roman soldier that was sitting there next to him. And so the series, as we preach through, has been 18 inches of chains because Paul is writing this letter from a position of literally being in prison, in jail, chained to a Roman guard. And so Paul commands us to rejoice. And he starts out and says, look, there are some people that want to do you harm. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so we see two different classes of people that Paul is referring to as dogs, One are the people who are doing bad behavior, and the other is people who have bad beliefs. Now, I hate to break this to you, but there are people in this world, and this world itself, want to destroy you. It doesn't want what's best for you. You can look in any phase of life. If you want to look about how to deal with your finances, let me tell you what. The world is spending billions of dollars to separate you from your cash. You can turn on the TV and it'll tell you that your phone that you've got ain't worth a thing. You need to get the new iPhone, triple EX. Your, your watch stinks, man. You need a new watch. Your car, that old truck you're driving, you need a new Chevy. You deserve the best. Commercials, commercialism will tell you that you've got to spend your money. If you watch, if you only place you know what love is came from movies and books and television, you would have a really warped sense of what love is. Because movies and television and songs will tell you that you can fall in and out of love. Will tell you, hey, you need to trade that 40 in on two twenties. You need to love means that's that's those warm, squishy feelings that you have inside. That's love. You know, we, we joke to hear that we know with kids that that's not the case. I was telling some people the other day and using this as an example. Uh, my children all, uh, for some reason, if they get sick in the middle of the night. Now, kids always get stomach viruses in the middle of the night. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's the phase of the moon. But if my kids get sick, this is what happens. Now, in my house, we have four bathrooms in my house. There's one near every one of their bedrooms. But if they get nauseous, what they do is they come running into my bedroom and go, I'm going to throw up. And then they proceed to throw up. And I pile out of the bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. I always say, go to the bathroom. And then they go running through the hall crying. And then they don't want daddy. Kids never want their daddy. They want mama. And so mom gets to sit in there with a cool washcloth going, there, there, baby. Well, I'm out there cleaning up the mess at 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, at that moment, I'll tell you what I don't feel. Love. I don't feel any little butterflies in my stomach. I don't feel like, oh, this is such a precious moment. The way It's not a hallmark moment at all. In fact, I've never seen that scene in a movie. 
to show me the joys of parenting. Because at that moment, I don't want to be a parent. I want to go to bed. But in reality, that is exactly what love is. Love is caring more about that other person and caring more about their needs than I do my own. And so you can't fall into love. Love is a decision. Love is deciding that I'm going to invest in this person, that I'm going to be with this person. And if you listen to the world, it will rob you because you'll never have that experience of a long, deep, long-lasting relationship. There are people out there who want to destroy you. The enemy that you have hates your gut. The devil hates you because, first of all, you're made in God's image, and he hates you even more if you're a Christian. And he would love nothing more than to completely destroy you. And there are people that are fully willing to be his servants to help him in that endeavor. And so Paul is warning the people in the church, hey, watch out for those people. He calls them dogs. Some of them come up to you and they say, hey, you know what? Why don't you come with me? Let's just go, go down here and, and grab us a beer. That, hey, why don't we, you come with me and we're going to go buy a new boat. I'm not casting boats under the, the bus necessarily, but I'm just saying, there are people that will draw you into doing stuff you're not supposed to do, and there are people that will tell, tell you wrong beliefs. This idea of mutilation isn't somebody cutting themselves, it's circumcision and saying that Jesus isn't enough. You don't need Jesus. You're a pretty good guy. And so there are people who will lie to you to pull you into hell. And so Paul warns the church, stay away from those people. And then he gives them the antidote, which is different than what I would have expected. Or, or Paul says, we are the cir circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And so the solution, the way to fight against the, those things in the world, is not for me to sit around and steal my mind. It isn't for, it's worship. Worship is the solution to the people who are going to pull us aside. Now, I have to hesitate with that because when we say the word worship, typically in the church what we think of is what we just did, singing songs. And that is definitely a huge part of worship. But Paul gives us the specific definition of worship right here in the text. To glory in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You realize that as a believer, everything you do, if you're doing it, saying, I don't have the strength to do this, but it's Jesus doing it through me, everything you do is an act of worship. Cleaning up that hall in the scene that I just described can be an act of worship. Mama's changing a diaper can be an act of worship. Going to your job at Goodyear can be an act of worship. In fact, Martin Luther was asked about uh, this very thing, and he said, look, if you're a shoe cobbler, and you want to worship God in your making of shoes, don't make shoes with little crosses on them. Make the best shoes you can to the glory of God. It, no matter what you do, if you do it with all your might to God's glory, that is an act of worship. And if you're going about your life focused on doing things for Jesus' sake, no confidence in what you are and what you're doing, you realize that that protects you against all those fools that want to pull you in another direction. And so Paul says, beware the dogs, and the way to protect yourself against that is to worship. He then goes on to explain why we can put no confidence in our flesh. He says, if anyone else had his reason to put confidence in flesh, I have more. 
and he lists out all the things he's done, that he has done in his life. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrews of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything decays. Everything rots. Everything is falling apart. As I get older, I'm learning that my flesh is one of the things that's falling apart. You get out of bed sometimes, you step on the floor and you go, where did that pain come from? That's a new one. And then I get on Google and I find out that I've got all kinds of diseases and, and try to figure it out. I'm sure that medical professionals love it when you go to Dr. Google first. And then you come in and you say, this is what my problem is. Um, so everything decays. When we lived in North Carolina, um, not too far from our house was an old cotton mill. This huge, probably four-story brick, beautiful brick building built in the early 1900s. And I was, they were going to tear it down or do something with it. And I was able to go into the building beforehand and these massive beams that were going through the ceiling of this thing that had been hand hewn and then using dowels put together in those joints I, I just looked at that and thought how many hours did somebody with an axe and an A's work to set these beams I mean they were massive and yet they were set on top of each other and notched and put together. And they were all over that place. And some of them had rotted and fallen to the ground. And I'm looking at them. And they were covered in that fine white fuzz that comes from a cotton mill. And I thought, in this building, how many people grew up, worked 30 years in this building, made the money that supported their family, raised their kids. This building was what their entire life circulated around and now it's rotting to the ground we all watched this last week as notre dame burned and i think all of us if we're honest watched that and thought how many hundreds of thousands of man hours as stones were notched together and that beautiful spire was put together and yet it burned and collapsed and fell to the ground like so much rubble Again, our bodies decay. I've been in the hospital room as people breathed their last this week. And with human eyes just looking, you think there's nothing left. It all just falls to dust. The most beautiful museum piece someday will go to the trash. I just read a story this week about the most rare Fabergé egg ever made. It was solid gold, was bought by a guy a few years ago at a flea market scrap heap. Someone had thrown this Fabergé egg in a pile with raw metal. Unbelievable works of art will all rot. Every person in this room will die. We can't put any confidence in the flesh because the flesh will fail you someday. 
All of us are going to breathe our last. All of us. No matter how strong you are, no matter how smart you are, someday you will be put in the ground. The house that you've worked so hard to build someday will collapse. That's why when you drive out in the country and you see some beautiful antebellum home rotting into itself, it makes you a little sad inside, doesn't it? You see a big old barn that used to be beautiful, used to be full of life, and now it's just a rotten heap of wood. It's because we recognize that nothing lasts. It's all falling apart. And Paul says, I cannot put any trust in my faith. My faith cannot be in my flesh. It cannot be in my accomplishments. If you're the best at whatever, in a few years you ain't going to be the best at whatever anymore. On Wednesday night, I, I, I told the, the church the story. I, I used to work at Sanford. I was a security guard there. It's a very glamorous position, I know. And um, I had to unlock the law school every day. And as you walked into Cumberland School of Law, there was this massive, it was like five times the size of a human body, this uh, painting of a guy. And he was wearing a 40s suit, and he, he was leaned up against a globe, and he looked very stately. And I'm like, who is this guy? And there, there was his name on the little plate, but I didn't, I'd never heard of the name before, so I started asking people, hey, who's the dude with the big picture? And nobody knew. I actually had to do research to find out who the guy was, because you know what? One day when he was, was posing for that painting, everybody thought that guy's the man. He is awesome. That dude is the best dude ever. We're going to get a big picture of him. And today, hundreds of students walk past that picture and they go, oh, there's that guy. They have no idea who he is. They have no idea why he was so important that they made a big picture. It all falls apart. And so, as human beings, it's easy to look at that and think, well, what I've got to do in this life is go for the gusto. YOLO, carpe diem, whatever phrase you want to use, I've got to go for my happiness today. And Paul says even that falls apart. Humankind alone is without hope. But... Paul goes on to write and say, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so what Paul is talking about there is this divine transaction. You see, every person in this room, the Bible says, is a sinner. We're all if left ourselves, bad. There's none good, no, not one. Nobody is good. Nobody. Romans chapter 1 says that we would go out of our way to do what's wrong. We have no hope on our own because we are bad. And the payment for sin is death. What we deserve is not to breathe. Now what that means is this. God told them in the garden, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. On that day, you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God had told them not to eat. And so any day after that, 
any day after that. What humanity deserves is death. Any breath we take is a gift. Any smiles that we get, every joy that we get from watching our children, from watching life, is a gift that we don't deserve. Because we can't be good. In fact, the Old Testament stories are to show us that if you take human beings, the children of Israel, and you put them in perfect situation, if you put them in a situation that humanity should flourish, where everything is going for them, you know what they're going to do? They're going to mess it up. Mankind, when left to himself, is wicked and evil. We have no hope. And so, God so loved the world, the Bible tells us, that he sent his only son. And so Jesus came to this world, and for 33 years, he lived a life without sin. He didn't do anything wrong. We've joked about, in church here, about how awkward that had to have been for his brothers and sisters. I mean, you could never live up to that brother, right? Why can't you be like your brother? Well, he's Jesus. He lived his whole life and never sinned, never did anything wrong. And when humanity was faced with the perfect man, what we said collectively was, kill it. And so Jesus, this week we saw, on Monday, Thursday, we celebrated how Jesus stood with his disciples and he lifted up that bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he broke the bread. Nobody else broke the bread. Jesus broke the bread, symbolizing the fact that he would lay down his life for humanity. He freely gave up his life. Nobody took it, he gave it. And then he lifted up that cup and he said, This is my blood, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Knowing the symbolism of what would about, was about to happen. That night, he went out to the garden. And while he was praying, those guards came and got him and took him. And trial after trial after trial, kangaroo court after kangaroo court, so much so that the Roman, uh, the Roman governor said, I find nothing wrong with this guy. And yet the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so he was carried outside of the city as prescribed by the law. He was nailed onto a cross. When he was in the garden, he had prayed, God, just let this cup pass from me. And as that cross was lifted up from the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, the sin of everyone who would ever believe was poured out on Christ so that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that all of a sudden, there could be hope and so the father treated jesus like he was a robber he treated jesus like he was an adulterer he treated jesus like he was a thief and a murderer the father treated jesus like he had porn on his computer the father treated jesus like he was a jerk to his family the father treated jesus 
like he had embezzled money from his company. All of the sin was dumped out on Christ. And so all the shame that we deserve, all the wrath of God that we deserve, all the punishment that we deserve was poured out on Him. And then the Bible says that He cried out, It is finished. And then He gave up the ghost. And the gland turned dark. And there was an earthquake. And the curtain tore from the top to the bottom in the temple. As Garrett pointed out, those disciples didn't know what to do. The shepherd had been struck. They didn't know where to go. They had believed for the last three years that this guy was the Messiah. He was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. What are we going to do? And so they ran and they hid. Some faithful ladies and one or two of the disciples and Joseph of Arimathea went and took him down from that grave, from that that, uh, cross, and they took him and put him in a borrowed grave. And all seemed to have been lost. All hope was banished. Saturday, historically in churches, has been called Silent Saturday because there's nothing. The disciples must have felt like, this is over, this is real. I can imagine waking up Saturday morning and going, oh, that was a bad dream. No, that was real. He's gone. Our hope is over. That was Passover the next day, the first day of the week. We read in Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. So they, they, what they would do is they would take the body and they would rub spices into the body and then wrap a shroud around it and continue to do that. And so they were going, they had no idea that anything had changed They were going to prepare the body so that it wouldn't stink. You can imagine them going carrying. It was a heavy amount. It was like 100 pounds of spices. They go carrying these spices, trudging toward that grave, thinking all is lost. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were confused about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their face to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you? That grave was empty. What that means is, is that that sacrifice that was made on the cross, that we're free. You can't be ashamed of your sin anymore if you depend on what He did on the cross. Because Jesus took it. The wrath that God had for you. Jesus took it. The punishment. The whoopings that we deserve. Jesus took it. And we know that the Father accepted it because on Sunday morning when those ladies went to the grave, He wasn't there. And dead men don't get out of a grave on their own like I said with the kids. I get asked all the time, which would you rather do, a funeral or a wedding? And I answer without hesitation, a funeral. Because a funeral, the guest of honor never tells me how he wants it done. But the, bride, the mother of the bride, she's got an opinion. I'm not looking at anybody, I'm just, I'm just saying, because there's some mothers of the bride in the room. 
Dead people don't get up. They're dead. Nietzsche said the only thing that the dead know is that they're dead and they want to be alive. And yet when they went to that grave, he was gone. And what that means is that we are free. We're free to obey him. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talking about our sinning, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death that just as Christ was raised by the dead from the glory of the Father, you too can walk in newness of life. And what that means is, is that the same power that lifted Jesus out of that grave, the same power that made a dead man walk, can help you live a life honoring Christ. Just a few weeks ago, Brian, preaching from, from Philippians chapter 2, said, hey, don't think that salvation is something that happened in the past. That your salvation is something that works out in you every day. Salvation is not a prize you get that you put in a frame and hang on the wall salvation is something that's a tool that works out every day as you go what this text is saying is that resurrection is the same thing the resurrection is not something that just happened resurrection is something that happens today if you live the way jesus wants you to live that when you got up this morning if you said praise the lord that was the power of the resurrection working through you God's resurrection didn't just happen, it's still happening. Now, what that means is, is that dead people can walk in that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing you can do to make yourself stop sinning. I can tell you that from experience. Whenever I'm tempted to sin, when I try to white-knuckle my way through it and go, I will not sin, I will not sin, I will not sin, I will not sin, what I end up doing is sinning. It's not going to work. You're not strong enough to overcome your own sin. But the power of the resurrection working through you is strong enough for you to be a new person. Dead men walk. So we see the power of the resurrection day after day after day when we see people changed into the image of Christ. The recidivism rate in most drug and alcohol rehab programs is 89%. Last time I checked. That number's fluid. You'll read statistics anywhere from 95 down to 85, but it's always on the high number. Drunks don't stop being drunks. I have all of my family on my father's side growing up, they, they, they would say, I, I, I ain't going to quit. I like it. I like the way it tastes. I like the way it makes me feel. I don't care that it's ruined my family. I don't care that I'm living like a bum. I like the booze. Drunks don't stop being drunks. People who are on drugs don't stop being on drugs on their own. They don't. Everybody in here has got a family member who's touched by drug abuse. And you've all seen them lie and steal from their own family and do things that they would never do before those drugs took over their life. And they go to rehab after rehab after rehab and they're in and out and in and out and doing the same things over and over again. But you know what I know? I know a bunch of people, 
In fact, this room is full up of people that used to be known as the most sorry drunks in this county. And yet now, they're known for people that love Jesus. Because the power of the resurrection works. There are people in this room that didn't care as much about their family as they did getting that next pill, or getting that next shot, or getting that next toke. They cared a lot more about that than they did anything else. And they're in this room today saying, I, through the power of Christ, am free! And it's only through the power of Christ that you can be free. And so we see the power of the resurrection at work in life. And I'm here to tell you, the power of the resurrection has power over death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have died have perished. If Jesus didn't get up out of that grave, then every funeral is without hope. But because we know that that tomb is empty, we can go to a funeral of a believer and point to that box and say, that ain't him. That's not her. They're coming back. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up into the sky with them. And we will together forever be with them. And then shall come to pass the saying that is said, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Because the Bible tells us that because Jesus got up out of that grave, He defeated the final enemy, and death is dead. It has no power over us. Those believers who pass away are coming back. In fact, they're coming back on a white stallion. For those of us that don't ride horses much, I ain't sure how that's going to work out, but we're coming back. And so, this morning, we don't just celebrate something that happened something that's a historical situation or something that, that the fables and the fairy tales tell us. We celebrate something that's alive today in this room. We celebrate a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And so as you go from this place, live in the power of that resurrection. Live the way Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His suffering, becoming like Him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father God, Lord, I pray that You would bless Your Word and bless the preaching of it. God, I pray that Your Spirit would go through this room and convict and draw. Lord, we love You, and we thank You for this glorious truth that we can live in today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.